You are listening to the Grace Covenant Cornelius Audio Podcast. Well, I want to pray before I begin the message, but before I do, there are two things that I would like to do. The first is I, I want to brag just a little bit, and I'm not on me, but you'll, you'll see what I mean in just a moment. And then the second thing I want to do is just go off script a little one, a bit to just give you some context for the message today. But let me brag first. In the two and a half years that we were away, we had the joy, the privilege of becoming grandparents. How many grandparents are in the room? There's nothing like it, is there? It is the most incredible thing. Um, and so uh, I, as a proud, uh, my, my grandpa name is Poppy. Cammie is Lola. And so as a proud poppy, I just happened to have some photos this morning. And I know that you really want to see them. So let's, let's look at the screen for a moment. Look at this. Isn't that just so cool? This is Reed. Reed is the son of Adam and Rachel Wilson. Many of you know Adam. He was the worship uh, pastor at the East Lincoln campus for a period of time. And um, uh, Reed is also the grandson of Jay and Anita Morris, who are part of the Grace Covenant family. But this was shortly after, just right after, his first official haircut. Isn't that cool? I think the sucker is what just gives the bit of attitude. So he was able to strike a pose, and uh, he's just so sweet and so adorable and so loving. He was at our home on uh, Friday night, and he was sitting in an oversized chair beside Cammie, and every once in a while he would just reach over and give her a hug and say, I love you. It's just, you melt. Yeah, it's, oh. But then um, on Christmas Day, we had this most incredible gift given to us, and it's this, Elias Bascom Wilson. Literally, he was born on Christmas Day. He was about three weeks early. He wasn't due till January 6th. But we knew he wanted to come ahead of time. So on Christmas Day, we got a call from the kids uh, around 1030. And they said, uh, we're going to be at your house today for Christmas lunch, probably around 1230. And then uh, literally about 20 minutes later, they called back and said, we're going to the hospital. And he was born later that afternoon. And just uh, a joy uh, in our lives. You know, we've been told that... um, You love your children, but you fall in love with your grandchildren. And we have found that to just be so true. So that's my brag for the morning. Thank you for bearing with me and seeing those pictures. Um, The second thing that I want to do, I could talk about them all day, too, just so you know that. So I I, I need to keep moving on. The second thing that I want to do is just go off script a little bit. And I want to give you some context for the message today before I actually bring it And what I want you to know is that the message actually flows out of our life in 2017. Uh, The message today is uh, is entitled, Fight to Win. But I I could have very well uh, entitled the message, uh, How to Survive the Worst Year of Your Life. Because literally, that's what 2017 was like for us. Now, let me say, God was faithful. He taught us so much during that year. Lessons that changed and transformed us and that we'll carry for the rest of our lives. But let me tell you how our year began. Um, On January 1st at 2.30 a.m., my cell phone rang, and I didn't hear it at first. I missed the call. I realized it had rang. I, I, uh, it was my oldest son. That's always an alarm that, you know, your son is calling you at 2.30 in the morning. And um, I called him back, and he said, Dad, everything's okay, but... And he paused. 
And he wasn't sure how to say what he wanted to say. He said, Zach's okay. So Zach is my younger son, our younger son. He said, Zach's okay, but... And he was just taking us. time. I go, Adam, bottom line me, what is going on? And uh, to make a very long story short, uh, long because it took about nine months to come to an end, um, on, at 2.30 a.m., uh, shortly before that, my, my youngest son, who lives in Wilmington, was... Um, Accosted, he was attacked, and he was brutally beaten. Um, not of his own making, not of his own doing. He truly was uh, the innocent party. And as a result, uh, he received uh, critical multiple injuries, uh, which required multiple surgeries throughout the year. Well, I just have to tell you, that's not the kind of news you want to hear at 2.30. Uh, not the kind of news you want to hear anytime, quite honestly. Uh, and we felt helpless because we were uh, not there. Uh, we didn't have all the details, and we were trying to figure out what to do. And that turned into about nine months of medical procedures, some surgeries, um, but also legal proceedings. Uh, there was much legal that had to be taken care of. And to fast forward that story, in September, the, uh, the person who um, assaulted him did plead guilty. And, and I'll just put it this way, justice was done. And so we're thankful for that. But there was, there was so much that happened in between that time. And so just fast forward a little bit. Uh, in the midst of all of this, um, while Cammie and I were in Florida, and I, I really want to be careful what I say, but we found ourselves in a ministry session, uh, ministry uh, Situation that was um, very challenging. And uh, because of that, uh, later that month in January, around January 25th, there was a climax of a very challenging ministry setting time that happened on a relational basis. And honestly, it was very devastating to us. It was, it, it was, it was, yeah, I'm, I'm going to move on from that one. And then, um, so uh, fast forward. Uh, I was scheduled to have a hip replacement on May 17th of last year. I know, I don't look old enough for that to happen, right? <laughs> Please tell me that. Um, and in order for that to happen, you have to have uh, release from various doctors. So like your primary care doctor has to conduct an EKG and uh, say, you're good for surgery. And so I went into my primary care for the appointment, had the EKG. He came in and I said, so doctor, are you going to release me for surgery? And he said, let's talk about this EKG. He called himself and made an appointment with a cardiologist and had me in to see a cardiologist the next day. I went in to see the cardiologist, and the cardiologist said, we need to do an echocardiogram. That happened several days later, actually on Friday, April 21st. I know that because it was my uh, our 33rd wedding anniversary. Uh, we went to the doctor at 8.30 in the morning. Our truck was packed because we were going to leave from there on a two-week vacation in Wilmington where all the family was coming together. We had rented a condo uh, at the beach. Um, so had the echocardiogram, left, and about two to three hours into the trip, uh, the doctor called me. That's always that's another alert. The doctor called and he said, "Stan, would you consider um, delaying your vacation?" And I said, "Well, no." <laughs> My wife, he was on speakerphone. She's saying, "I got lasagna, frozen lasagna in the car. We're, we're, I'm ready for vacation. I've cooked ahead." And so he began to describe, and honestly, uh, for the moment, we were in shock, so we didn't really know all the questions to ask. And so um, he described uh, a medical condition. Uh, we all have something called an ejection fraction, and that's the rate at which your heart, uh, or the capacity at which your heart pumps blood out to the body. And the normal capacity is 55%. So uh, my cardiologist said, uh, your heart is very weak. 
and your heart is only pumping blood out to your body at 20%. And he said, this is very, very serious. Um, and we left and went on on vacation. I was, honestly, we, were, I was, we didn't know what questions to ask. About three days into the vacation, I realized that I had suddenly become gripped with panic and fear, and I don't say that lightly. I went through probably a three-and-a-half-week period where I only slept about one to two hours every night, knowing that be anxious for nothing but in everything with prayer. I knew that. Nevertheless, I, I was afraid. I wasn't sure what was going on, and I didn't know if I was maybe about to die. And so on a Monday morning, um, I, uh, after being, we arrived on Friday, on Monday morning, I called my primary care physician, and I said, please tell me what's going on. Give me some explanation. And he said, Stan, this is very, very serious, and there's a series of things you need to do. You need to be wearing an external defibrillator. He said, uh, if you get dizzy, if anything happens, you need to immediately go to the hospital. Don't lift anything. Don't do anything while you're on vacation. And he said, uh, you need to have a heart cath. So uh, we did cut that vacation uh, short by a week, came back home, had a heart cath, and I learned that I was in heart failure. I'd been having some symptoms that we thought was something to do with my lungs earlier in the year, um, but uh, literally the doctor said, this is very serious, you're in, you're in heart failure, and not only are you in heart failure, but you have congestive heart failure, your chest cavity, your heart and lungs is surrounded by fluid. And um, he uh, put me on a three-month medical leave and said, don't do anything but rest and get well. Well, at that moment, our life really changed. It's amazing how a crisis will affect you and make you make changes that you've known you should make all along. So we decided that we would approach this situation first spiritually. We were calling out to God like we never had before. But not only was it spiritually, but emotionally. It was, it was emotionally. It, it, it did me in. So I actually began to go to counseling over the weeks to find out how to work through through this and then uh, nutritionally suddenly we had to change everything about how we ate i had to actually go on almost a no salt diet everything's got salt in it just trust me everything and nothing tastes good without salt um uh physically you know just trying to turn determine how to fit so we we were approaching it from and mentally we were approaching it from every aspect that we could while depending completely on god and so um, during that time, so many lessons we were learning, but uh, still a lot of fear and concern and calling out to God. And then uh, at the end of the three months, uh, I went back and the congestive, the congestive heart failure was gone. I was still considered a heart failure patient. Um, uh, so, but we were thankful for that. And my ejection fraction had come up slightly, uh, about 5%. So now I was at 25%, which was still very serious. Um, and uh, with that, uh, with some things that had been going on in the ministry situation, um, we, made a, we made a choice at that point that we were going to step out of that ministry situation and we were going to come back home. It was very hard being away from family. That added to a lot of the, the challenge that was going on. And so uh, we took a step of faith and we, we moved back and we're settling in here. And so and now I'm going to fast forward a little bit more um, this past Friday, I was at the doctor's office for a checkup, and they said, you are doing great. They said, you are doing so good. So they've put me on a series of medications. I'm cold all the time, and Cammie's hot all the time, because the medications lower my heart rate and my blood pressure, but we can tolerate that. Sometimes I'll say, it is freezing in here, and she'll go, you have got to be kidding me. It is so hot in this room. 
Um, but they said, you're doing great. And in about three months, I'll have a ne- another echocardiogram and just expecting really good things. So with that, the reason I tell you all that is to say today, as I, as I speak to you, as I teach from the word, you, you just have to know that the message flows out of all of what I just talked to you about plus more and lessons that we learned that I want to share with you. So with that, I want to pray, and then we're going to dive into the message. Would you bow your heads? Father God, thank you. Thank you for your presence in this place. Thank you for allowing us to go before you and worship this morning. Um, Thank you for your faithfulness, your uh, loyalty to us, uh, that your love never ends. And so, Father, this morning I present uh, myself to you, as we present ourselves to you, and we ask that your word would transform us by your spirit. And we pray this in the most powerful name that we could ever pray, and that's the name of Jesus. Everybody said? Amen. Amen. Well, over the past months, I've been learning so much about the power of questions, about the power of asking powerful questions that really cause us to think and ponder. So as I begin this morning... I want to present you with some questions that I believe are worthy of us considering together. And here are some of those questions. They begin like this. What do you do? What do you do when? What do you do when life is filled with challenges? What do you do when suddenly you're confronted with a health crisis? What do you do when someone in your family is deeply and desperately hurting and you just don't know if there's anything you can do to help them? What do you do when everything comes crashing down on you at your work? What do you do when relationships collide and they hit hard times? What do you do when you're wrongly accused? What do you do when you face blow after blow after blow after blow and you feel knocked down and pushed down to the ground? What do you do? Here's what you do. You get up. You pull yourself up out of the fetal position. You step into the ring You face your challenger and you fight. And you fight like a champion who is focused on nothing less than fighting for the win. You fight for your marriage. You fight for your children. You fight for your family. Whatever's been thrown at you, you fight and you fight for the win. (laughs) A little mood music there. You're ready to get into the ring and fight, aren't you? Some of you just said, that's right, yes. But maybe there are others who would say, maybe, maybe not. I believe that there are times when we're unwilling to get up, step into the ring, face our challenger. Because the only thing that we feel is tired. We've suffered blow after blow after blow after blow. And the only thing that we feel is pushed down, knocked down to the ground. I just don't have any fight left in me. And there are times where maybe, just maybe, it would seem like if we just could stay curled up in the fetal position, maybe this will all go away. It's much safer this way. But here's the reality. It doesn't go away, does it? 
The truth of the matter is at some point, you're going to have to pull yourself up out of that fetal position. You're going to have to step into the ring. You're going to have to face your challenger and you're going to have to fight. And if you're going to have to do this, if you're going to have to fight, why not fight for the win? But I wonder, is it possible that sometimes we're unwilling to do this, to get up, face our challenger and fight? Because we don't really understand what it means to fight and fight for the win. And that's what I want us to ponder this morning. What does it mean to fight and fight to win? I want you to consider this with me. I guess we could call it kind of our big idea for the day. If you don't walk away with anything else, if you would walk away with this, fighters who fight and win understand how to fight to win. Fighters who fight and win understand how to fight and win. So how? How do you fight? How do you fight to win? I suppose that's the primary question that I want us to wrestle with today. I think it's very important, especially for those who say, I'm tired, I don't have any fight left in me, to understand that when I'm talking about fighting to win, I'm talking about a different kind of fight. I'm not talking about the exertion of physical energy. I want, to, I want us to look at two passages of Scripture. Both are found in Philippians uh, that will give some clarity to what I'm talking about. I'm not going to have you turn there because the first one, uh, which is the Philippians 1.6, comes from a translation, what I would consider my favorite New Testament translation. It's the J.B. Phillips translation. I just like how it states it. And then we're going to read a second one in the NIV. So here's what I want you to do. They're going to come up on the screens. I want you to pull out your best Sunday morning 11 o'clock service uh, reading God's Word voice. And we're going to read it together when I say go. Uh, the first one is Philippians 1.6. Are you ready? Let's go. I feel sure that the one who has begun his good work in you will go on developing it until the day of Christ Jesus. The second one is Philippians 4.13. may very, be very familiar to many of you. It says this. Let's go. I can do all things through him, Christ, who gives me strength. In these verses... Here's what we find. We find encouragement, we find comfort, and we find insight. What's the insight? The insight is that our fight is different. Our fight is through Christ. It's not an ordinary battle. In Him, we fight through His power. In Him, we fight through the energy that He gives us. In Him, we fight like we've never fought before because our fight, our battle is in Christ. In Him, we fight from a place of rest, not physical exertion. I believe that this is foundational. It's, it's, it's first in really understanding how to fight to win. You see, if we're going to fight to win then it's very important that we have a fight plan. Do you have a fight plan? And in order to ensure, to help ensure that all of us can leave this place with an effective uh, biblical fight plan, what I want to do this morning is look at a passage of Scripture found in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 5. 
Again, I'm not going to have you turn there because I want to read it from the Phillips translation. So it's going to appear on the screens. And what I want us to do is just mine out four nuggets. I'm going to look at four segments of this passage. And we're going to mine out the nuggets that come together to develop our fight plan. But before I read the passage to you, let me give you a little context of what's going on. Um, Paul, the Apostle Paul, is the writer of the letter to the Corinthian church. So he's writing this particular part of the passage. And um, Paul is having to defend his ministry against false accusation. In other words, um, it's being said of him, he's being accused of not truly being God's representative. In other words, he's being accused of not being who God actually said he is. Don't you find that interesting? I find it very interesting because that's the same accusation our uh, enemy, our accuser, makes against us. He wants us to believe that we are not actually who God says we are. What does God say we are? He says we are the righteousness of God in Christ. He says that we can be confident. He says that we can be faithful. He says that we're in right standing before God through Jesus Christ. And he doesn't want us to believe any of those things about our new identity. So he launches... Attacks, And that's all the more reason that we have to develop a fight plan. So I want to read the passage to you, and then we're going to go back and just mine out these nuggets. So listen as I read. The truth is that although, of course, we lead normal human lives, the battle we are fighting is on the spiritual level. The very weapons we use are not those of human warfare, but are powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. That's so key that I want to read it again. The very weapons we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. He goes on and he says, Our battle is to bring down every deceptive fantasy and every imposing defense that men erect against the true knowledge of God. We even fight to capture every thought until it acknowledges the authority of Christ. It's very powerful, isn't it? And that's where our, our fight plan is. As Paul leads into this passage, he does so by contending that he says, of course, we lead normal human lives. That's a no-brainer, right? Of course, we lead normal human lives. But in doing so, he is building, he's creating a contrast between the, 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 the natural and the supernatural. He's helping us understand. He identifies the reality of how you and I live life in this flesh and bone body on this earth on an everyday basis. And here's the contrast. When you and I commit our lives to Christ, a great change occurs. The Bible says that we are born again. Obviously, this is not a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. And at that very moment of the spiritual rebirth, um, we are declared and become new creations in Christ. At that moment, our citizenship changes. And because our citizenship changes, we begin to live life in a new kingdom. That kingdom is the kingdom of God. So what happens is in this flesh and bone body that functions in this world every day, we are at that time living life as citizens of the kingdom of God. And at the same time... We we are waiting for the fullness of that kingdom to come. This is not all there is. I'm so happy to tell you that there, God is preparing something so much more for us, but yet the kingdom of God is within us now because of Jesus Christ. So it's a now, but not yet type concept. Paul goes on. He continues by referencing 
the battle we are fighting. And he references the battle we are fighting as though there is a normal understanding that the battle that we are fighting should just be understood. It should be a common understanding. And guess what? It should be a common understanding because we are engaged in a battle. It's a different kind of battle, but we are engaged in a battle. It's common understanding because we have an enemy who has waged war against us. Actually, his battle is against God, but he recognizes that that battle is futile. He's never going to win it. So instead, he launches his attacks at us in an attempt to draw us away from God. And he does it through things like hardship. He does it through things like doubt. He does it through things like discouragement. And the list could go on and on and on. In fact, the Bible gives us great insight into his tactics by the numerous names that we find in Scripture. And among those names, I'd like to give you some. He's called the tempter. He's called the liar. He's called the father of lies, the adversary, the slanderer, the thief. He's called the murderer and the accuser. And the Bible helps us understand that he's shrewd and he's crafty and he develops a shrewd and crafty plan against us to draw us away from God. This is why we must have a flight, a flight plan, a fight plan. I knew I was going to slip and say that at some point. All aboard. A fight plan. So Paul goes on. He continues, and as he continues, he identifies the origin of the battle. And he identifies the origin of the battle of being on the spiritual level. And once again, Paul uh, identifies this contrast between the natural and the supernatural. So, although the battle occurs in this natural realm, and this flesh and bones body, every day here on this earth, its origin is in the dark recesses of the heavenlies. Its, its origin is in the darkness of hell itself. I think that Ephesians 6 10 gives us a great understanding of the origin of this battle. I want to read it to you. It says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly, heavenly realms. Pretty obvious, isn't it? Our battle is in the darkest recesses of the darkest places of the heavenlies. We have to recognize that we have an enemy. And I want to tell you this morning that your enemy, some of you will be very uh, glad to hear this, some of you may question me, your enemy is not your spouse, not your husband, not your wife. It's not your children. It's not your parents. It's not your boss. It's not your neighbor. It's not whomever may have thrown the blow at you. Instead, your conflict, your battle is orchestrated by your spiritual enemy. Now, with that, I want to give you a, 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 a little bit of an extra message uh, with no extra charge. Don't ever allow that fact to become an excuse for your uh, poor choices in life. In other words, if you are going to allow your sin nature to master you, bringing destruction, then take responsibility for it. You're your own worst enemy at that point. I think our enemy just gets to step back because you, you become your own master. The, the devil made me do it doesn't fly. 
as new creations in Christ, we are to take responsibility. So I'll move on. That could be another message for a, a whole other day. So, starting to bring it home. Finally, in the last phrase, Paul identifies, in my opinion, what I believe to be the foundational truth of a winning fight plan. And he says this, The very weapons we use are not those of human warfare, but powerful in God's warfare for the destruction of the enemy's strongholds. Now, perhaps you, like me, uh, if you memorized Scripture when you were younger, memorize this in the King James or maybe the New King James Version, which says something like this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. Now, it's believed that when Paul wrote this particular part of the passage, that he may have very well had in mind an imagery from his home region uh, of Cilicia. So I want to read you uh, uh, a description of uh, what he may have been um, thinking as he was writing. It comes from the Oxford Bible Church Commentary, uh, and it says this, Cilicia, Paul's native region, was located between Palestine and Rome. Palestine was considered to be Rome's primary food supplier. When en route to Rome from Palestine, the supplier ships had to go past Cilicia's rocky cliffs. The pirates of Cilicia had become a major threat. They had constructed high rock forts on the Cilician cliffs. In fact, there were 120 of these forts, and guess what they were called? They were called strongholds. These were the pirate bases. The pirates would come out of the strongholds, raid the ships, steal the food, and retreat back up to their secure strongholds. All the efforts to defeat them on sea failed. Even after successful skirmishes, their bases were intact and secure, and the root of the problem had not been touched. There was by 67 B.C. an army of 10,000 pirates that had brought Rome to its knees by cutting off its food supplies. Rome's pirate problem was urgent and could not be avoided. Rome's normal approach to warfare against the pirates had failed because the pirates were a different kind of army, more like an underground guerrilla operation. Rome's normal weapons had become ineffective. The issue was so serious that the Senate commissioned top General Pompey to uh, come up with a solution to the problem. They offered him whatever he needed and gave him three years to fix it. He came up with a brilliant plan and strategy. He designed and built special mighty weapons to attack these bases rather than attacking the individual pirates. These were ships with huge grappling hooks that he sent out in 11 different directions to attack the strongholds. They catapulted the hooks up onto the cliffs to pull down the strongholds. The Roman fleet did not go after the pirate ships. Instead, every stronghold built in proud defiance against Rome was often pulled into the sea. Meanwhile, Roman soldiers were positioned to capture any fleeing pirates. They brought them into captivity to the obedience of Rome. Most surrendered and came into obedience. Those who did not were killed for their disobedience. The pirates were overwhelmed and had no answer to these mighty weapons, which were specifically designed for pulling down the strongholds. In just three months, Pompey had totally defeated the pirates. What had seemed to be an insoluble bondage was broken permanently. Knowing that normal weapons would fail, Pompey had absolute victory by using 
mighty weapons. There were no more pirate problems. He overwhelmingly defeated them, and the problem never returned. Now the provisions could flow freely to Rome. And it's believed that it was with this imagery in mind that Paul wrote, the weapons of our warfare, they're not carnal, but they are mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. That's that aha moment for me when I read that. When I saw that imagery, it all made sense that God has given us mighty weapons, but so often we want to use our normal weapons and they don't work. They just won't work. Fighters who fight and win understand how to fight to win. Fighters who fight and win understand how to fight and win. So what's the fight, the fight plan? The fight plan's simple. Fighters who fight to win understand that the battle is natural, yet supernatural. Fighters who fight to win understand that the battle is undeniable. Fighters who fight to win understand that the battle is not ordinary, it's spiritual. And fighters who fight to win understand the, the battle requires a different kind of weapon. It requires mighty weapons. A mighty battle will never be fought and won through natural, normal resources and responses. A mighty battle requires mighty weapons. Listen, we have an enemy who is engaged in battle with us and it's no ordinary battle. It's a spiritual battle. And we can't fight this spiritual battle with normal weapons. It requires God's mighty weapons. What are some of the normal weapons, some of the normal resources that we try to use. Too often we fight with ability, talent, effort, control, manipulation, intimidation, condemnation, accusation, speculation, frustration, irritation, and judgment. And if you've used any of those weapons, those natural, normal responses and resources, they typically, they don't win the battle, do they? But on the flip side, when we use God's weapons, mighty weapons, we always win. What are God's mighty weapons? Truth. Righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ. Peace that comes through the gospel. Hope which comes through our salvation. A sword, which is the Word of God, and being constant in prayer. Those are the mighty weapons. Those are the weapons that win the battle. Those are the weapons that reach up on the cliffs and pull down the strongholds that our enemy has built up against us. And guess what? When those strongholds are pulled down, then everything begins to freely flow. And it only happens when we incorporate this into our life as our fight plan. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes this morning. I wonder how many in the room would confess that so often when you are involved in challenge or conflict that you resort to your natural uh, resources and responses and you recognize today that it's not working and you want to make a change if you if you're one of those people would you just raise your hand I'll cr cross the room up in the balcony 
You're just saying, yeah, I'm guilty. I've been using my natural responses and resources. There, just keep your hands up all across the room. I want to pray for you because I believe that your hand raised represents a repentant heart. And you'd say, I want to walk in a different way. I want, I want to walk towards and use the mighty weapons. Father God, uh, you see each person. You know their hearts so well. You know their situations. You know the conflicts. You know the challenges. You know the battles that they fought. You know the battles that they've tried to win with their natural responses and resources, but they haven't been successful. I pray today that you would honor their, their hand raised because it represents their heart, and you would do a transforming work by your spirit right now, that there would be a time of repentance where they would walk away from the natural, normal weapons, and they would in, engage, they would uh, embrace the mighty weapons that you have given us. Father God, I ask that there be transformation in this place right now. I pray it in Jesus' name. Would you keep your uh, heads bowed, uh, your eyes closed? So you could put your hands down if you had them raised. Um, I, I never want to make an um, assumption that when we gather in a place like this, that everyone here has a relationship with Christ. I know earlier I said when we commit our lives to Christ, um, but... Maybe there are people here who have not done that yet. Maybe you're struggling in the battle and the conflict because you didn't even know that God had provided mighty weapons because you don't talk to God. You don't have a relationship with Him. And so I want to give that opportunity this morning. And we're going to do it this way. I'm going to, I'm going to lead you in a prayer of invitation. Uh, I'll pray it in short phrases, and you're going to repeat it after me. And, and some of you possibly will pray it for the very first time, and you will sincerely be asking Jesus to come into your heart, forgive you of your sins, and be your Savior. So would you pray this with me? Father God, today I confess that I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. Jesus, I believe that you died for me. So today I'm asking that you would come into my heart forgive me of my sin today I make a commitment to love you and serve you forever in Jesus name if you just keep your eyes heads bowed eyes closed um, if, if there are those if even one who are here who prayed that prayer for the first time we want to celebrate with you and so with the privacy of those uh, around you with their heads bowed and eyes closed, if you prayed that prayer today for the first time, would you be brave enough to just uh, raise your hand and let your eyes catch my eyes so that we can just celebrate with you? Is there anybody here and you prayed that prayer today for the first time? Just kind of gaze across the room. Over here? Right here? Yeah. Congratulations. Is there anybody else? You say, yeah, today I prayed that prayer for the first time. Up in the balcony? Is there anybody I missed? So here's what I want us to do. I want you to open your eyes. I want you to stand. And I want you to celebrate with me because somebody in this room made the greatest decision of their life. They accepted Jesus Christ as Savior. Thank you, Father. We celebrate. We celebrate today. Wow. I'm going to ask our ministry leaders if they will come forward. They're going to come forward and they're here to pray for you. Maybe you're involved in a conflict right now and you just need somebody to pray with you that you could really engage these mighty weapons. For that person who made the commitment to Christ today, who raised their hand, I would encourage you to come to one of these uh, uh, couples and just tell them what you did and let them help you get started in your journey with Jesus. You don't have to do it alone. 
uh, there are people who want to walk beside you and help you in this journey. So I would just encourage you to do that. Um, I want to say to you, thank you for allowing me to be here today and having the privilege of bringing the word to you. What a great group of people you are. You're our family. And again, it feels so good to be back home. Would you, before you leave, turn to somebody and just look at them and say, it's a great day. Turn right now and do that. And then say, I'll see you later. God bless you. Have a great day. For more information on Grace Covenant Church, our service times, ministry opportunities, directions, and more, visit us at gracecovenant.org.